You can go ahead if you want to get a head start and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, we're going to continue our uh, Foundations series for just another few weeks uh, through the end of January as we continue to look at some of these very basic truths and concepts that God introduces to us very early in the early pages of the Bible. And this week we're going to look at a very important concept, very important activity. Uh, This week we're going to look at prayer. Um, Prayer, of course, I I would hope when I say this that it's right that prayer is relevant to every single one of us here because what is a relationship with God without prayer? Uh, It doesn't really exist. It's it's absolutely critical. Now this is not going to be a message about how often to pray or what posture to take or or what to say when you're praying. It's not a it's not a seminar or a workshop on prayer. This is going to be more a talk about the nature of prayer and and what it means to approach God in prayer and what attitude we have and what we expect to happen when we come into the Lord's presence in prayer. And um, <clears throat> after spending the last three weeks, uh, both uh, TJ did uh, one lesson on him, and I think I did two, after spending the last three weeks on, of the series in the life of Abraham, we are going to go now just for this week, and we're going to look at the life of Abraham's grandson, uh, Jacob, <clears throat> who is, um, to put it mildly, a very interesting character. If you know Jacob, you know that he is in some ways very human, very down-to-earth, very feet of clay, very easy for us to relate to, because Jacob is a character that we learn a lot about. There's a lot of complexity to his character, and there's a lot of just very down-to-earth craziness going on with Jacob. Uh, Jacob is a person, see if this maybe resonates with any of you or with me, Jacob is a person who likes to be in control of things. Jacob is a person who likes to, to, as much as possible, be in the driver's seat. He is a planner. Uh, He is a strategist. Uh, You might even say that he is a schemer. In fact, you probably need to say that he is a schemer. Uh, Jacob is crafty. He is intelligent. He is um, ambitious. And Jacob can also be a manipulator. Jacob knows how to manipulate the situation to his advantage. And if he gets the opportunity and he feels like it is necessary, he will also manipulate other people and even deceive people if necessary to get what he wants. And one thing about Jacob is he always seems to be grasping for more. He always seems to be grasping for more. He always seems to to want more. He wants more leverage. He wants more security. He wants more control. And this, uh, this, this, we're going to look at some verses and actually read some of what Jacob says later in, 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 in the morning. But <clears throat> this, this pattern of, of grasping for things in Jacob's life begins very early in his life. Uh, moms, if you have two children who are very close in age, that's great, right? You always want to have kids that are close in age because they can play together, right? And they never fight at all, right? It's just, it's, they, they, they just get along from the time that they're born and they're just best friends. Um, no, right? If you have kids that are close in age, especially if they're the same sex, um, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're heading for some conflict there because there's going to be a sibling rivalry. They're not going to know how to share very well. And if you look at the family here with Isaac and Rebecca, and, uh, you know, Rebecca gets pregnant and this, this sibling rivalry for Jacob and his brother actually starts literally in the womb. I mean literally in the womb. The babies are actually fighting in utero. 
And, and, and in fact, when, when they're born, Jacob is actually hanging on to his older brother's heel as if to say, get back in here, I'm not finished with you yet. And, and so they name him Jacob, which technically speaking means the one who grasps, grasps the heel. Um, you, could, you could translate it a little less literally as the supplanter. I've even, I've even seen it loosely translated, the cheater. This is the one who's grasping, the one who's grabbing. Jacob's mother, Rebekah, when she was pregnant with these two twins, had actually sought the Lord to find out what was happening inside of her body because she says, this, this isn't normal. And God had spoken to her and said, Rebekah, there are two nations in your womb. In fact, the older one is going to serve the younger one. So Rebekah knew when she saw what order the kids came out in that, that Jacob was going to be God's chosen one. And it doesn't say this in the Bible, but I think I'm right when I say that my guess is that Rebecca, who was, we're going to find out, quite a schemer herself, had let Jacob in on this secret at some point and told him that he was the chosen one. And he knew that. And even though God had already determined when he made this, this statement to Rebecca, this prophecy, he had already determined that Jacob's blessing would be greater than Esau's and that Jacob would be the dominant brother, still... The two of them, Jacob and Rebekah, did everything in their power to make sure that it happened, as if maybe God just needed a little bit of help to, to pull this off. Most of you know, because you know the story of Jacob, you know a lot of what this involved. You know that it involved somehow taking the birthright away from Esau, because the birthright was the right of the older son. And the birthright involves a lot of things, but one thing it involves is a double portion of the inheritance that traditionally goes to the oldest son in the family, partly because he is going to have the responsibility of leading the family in the next generation. And Jacob wants the birthright. And he pulls this off by actually convincing Esau, when Esau comes back home really tired one day from a hunting trip, he, he trades the birthright, he trades a bowl of soup to Esau for the birthright, which of course says as much about Esau as it does about Jacob. But it's still a very aggressive maneuver on Jacob's part. There's one more thing Jacob had to do. He had to get the official blessing from his father, which was very important in those, in those days, and that official blessing was supposed to go to Esau. But Jacob managed to extract this blessing from his weak and visually impaired father by impersonating his brother with a lot of help from his mom. If you want to read about the details of this, it's in about chapter 27 of Genesis. But, but as, you, as you might know, or as you might at least have figured out, when Jacob does this, this is the last straw for Esau. Esau, the older brother. And at this point, Esau vows to kill his brother as soon as the opportunity presents itself. Rebecca hears about this. Mom hears about this. And so she's got to get Jacob out of town as quickly as possible uh, for his own safety. So she basically goes full-on drama queen with Isaac. And she says, Isaac, I loathe my life because of Esau's godless foreign wives. And if Jacob marries one of these women like Esau did, I won't be able to handle it anymore. So please send him off to find a wife from among my relatives. And so Isaac agrees, and they ship Jacob off to a place called Haran, which is about 400 to 500 miles north-northeast of the Holy Land. So it's basically going from here to like Philadelphia. So it's a pretty long trip. Jacob heads off to Haran by himself. And on the way to Haran, something big happens to Jacob. God speaks to him. If you ever heard of Jacob's ladder and you've, you've, you've heard about the story of the angels going up and down on a ladder between earth and heaven, this is 
that time. God speaks to Jacob in a vision, and God promises Jacob that he will always be with him and that Jacob will one day come back safely to his own land and to his own family. He also repeats to Jacob the promise that he made to Abraham a long time ago about how not just Abraham's descendants, but how Jacob's descendants are going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth, and it won't just be Abraham, but God says to Jacob, I will bless all the families of the earth, not just through your grandfather, but through you. Jacob, you're the one. God makes him this promise. This is a totally unconditional promise gracious promise that God makes to Jacob with absolutely no strings attached. But remember, he's Jacob. So rather than just receiving the promise for what it is, Jacob responds by making a deal with God. He says, okay, God, I kind of believe you, but if you bring me back safely, and if I can come to this place again, then you'll be my God, and I'll belong to you. And then I'll give you a tenth of everything that you bless me with. So there's the deal. And then rather than build an altar to worship God from, which is what his father and grandfather had done at times like this in the past, Jacob instead merely sets up a memorial stone, he anoints it with oil, and he leaves it there in place, I guess as a reminder to him and certainly to God that God should fulfill his promise. And he gives the place where this happened a name. He calls it Bethel, which means the house of God. So at this point in his life, Jacob has taken one step toward God. It's a very basic one. He believes in God. He is now a monotheist. God is God to him, but he doesn't really trust this God yet. Jacob apparently over the course of his life has learned that the only person he can trust is himself, and so he's going to continue to live that way for now, God or no God. So Jacob continues the journey up to Haran, northern part of Syria area, and when he gets there, he meets his uncle Laban, Rebekah's brother. And he finds out that the scheming and deception habit apparently runs in Rebekah's whole family because this guy Laban is a real piece of work. Um, to make a long story short, Jacob basically gets a taste of his own medicine. He works for Laban. He, he makes a deal to work with Laban for seven years. And what he's going to get, he's going to get the hand in marriage of Laban's youngest daughter, Rachel, with whom Jacob has fallen in love. So it says there that it doesn't matter. He loves Rachel so much. Seven years is just like a few days to him. And so he gets to the end of the seven years. And then Laban does something to Jacob, if you think about it, strangely similar to what Jacob did to his father. And he pulls a big switcheroo. And Jacob, don't ask me the details of how this happens, but he ends up spending his wedding night with the wrong daughter. So now the upshot is he's got to marry them both. Laban does give him Rachel, but he says, you owe me another seven years now because you just got both of my daughters. And Jacob, I guess, has to agree to this. Well, he labors for Laban for another seven years. And after these 14 years, Jacob ends up working six more years for Laban in exchange for a portion of his livestock. They make another deal. And this is basically six years of these two guys plotting to rip each other off to see who will end up with the best cows and the best goats and the best sheep. Well, this time Jacob finally gets the better of Laban, and Laban is not a happy camper. Laban's really ticked off. And Jacob realizes that once again he needs to get out of Dodge before something really bad happens. So he packs up his family and all his belongings, and he starts to make the long journey back to the promised land. Jacob now has, by the way, a whole house full of kids. And I mean a whole house full of kids. He's got 11 sons and a daughter at this point. 
born through four different women. He's got two wives, and each of, of their handmaids has also given him at least one child. So, and so he's got these two sister wives, literally, that don't seem to like each other a whole lot. And by the way, at least one of them, probably both of them, but at least one of them we know is an idol worshiper like her father. So who knows what these kids have grown up with spiritually. In addition to this unruly mess, he has more livestock now that he knows what to do with, and he's got to somehow bring this whole very exposed, very vulnerable caravan full of people and animals and everything else, everything that's precious to him, on a very dangerous 400-mile journey, which is going to include crossing at least two rivers. And just as he descends into the Jordan Valley to make these dangerous crossings after his journey is about three-quarters of the way done, he goes down into the steep Jordan Valley, he gets word that his brother Esau, the brother who the last he knew was planning to kill him, Esau is coming to meet Jacob. Oh, and by the way, he's got 400 men with him. So this news, as you can probably guess, chills Jacob to the bone because he has no idea how he can possibly scheme his way out of this one. Oh, he's going to try. But he, he knows he can't do it by himself this time, and so Jacob finally decides it's time to bring God into the equation. By the way, are you tracking with Jacob yet? Does this, does this experience remind you at all of any occasions in your own life? Most of us are pretty good at planning, right? Most of us are pretty good at scheming our way through life. What is our reflex when we face a challenge or a problem or even an opportunity? Our reflexes typically have a plan, right? Get a plan. Figure it out and then make it happen. Is there a financial obstacle? Make a plan. Let's look at our resources. Let's make a plan. Let's figure it out. Let's figure out how to make ends meet. Uh, health scare? Go to WebMD. <laughs> learn as much about this thing as you can. And then figure out which doctors to call, which medicines to take, and the order that we should do it in order to, to, to have the best plan. Relationship issues, family struggles, strife with a spouse or a child, get a plan. Think it through. Figure out what to say. Figure out what to do. Figure out exactly the words I need to say to keep the problem from getting worse. Think, think, think. You can do this. And then someone might come to you and say, what about maybe praying? And you say, Yes, prayer. I forgot about that. Prayer is good. I almost forgot, but God can probably help, can't he? Yeah, he probably can. Okay, I should definitely pray. Does this sound familiar yet? When our grandson comes to town, uh, one, of the ways, one of the ways that we spoil him, there are many ways, one of the ways that we spoil him is by letting him occasionally play with our smartphones. And uh, we've downloaded a couple of toddler games for him to amuse himself with, you know, building trucks and things like that. And of course, when you first go to, to get the phone out and you put it in front of him and you start to open the app, he's like, I do it, I do it, I do it. Because he, he looks at the phone, he knows what the icons are and what they mean and everything, and he figures he's smart enough to operate the whole phone. Well, okay, here it is. You do it, I do it. So he gets the app open. About 30 seconds later, I always hear the same thing. Granddad, do it. Granddad, do it. Why? Well, because he's gotten himself stuck, which is a good thing because half the time he's rearranged the screen and he's deleted like two of my apps and he's about to buy like $10 worth of Apple Music, you know, but I stop him. But, but when he says granddad do it, he doesn't really mean that, does he? What does he mean? He means granddad fix it and then give it back to me so I can break it again. That's what it means. This, this is what we do with God in prayer sometimes, right? God fix it and then give it back to me so I can break it again. That's exactly 
where Jacob is at this point. We find Jacob's prayer, and you're going to find him being kind of hard on him because it's a pretty good prayer, but it's in Genesis 32, and it starts in verse 9. So let's read the prayer together. It goes through about verse 12. <clears throat> and Jacob said, okay, this is Esau is on the way. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob's prayer actually has some really good stuff in it, doesn't it? It's an awesome prayer. First of all, this is the first time in Jacob's life that he refers to God by his covenant name, Yahweh, when he says the Lord in verse 9. And I don't think that's by accident. I think Jacob realizes here that God has been reaching out first to his father, to his grandfather, and then to his father, and now to Jacob in relationship. And Jacob is counting on that offer as still being good. Kind of like when we say, God, I think it's been a long time since we've really spent any time together, but God, I know that you love me. I don't know what else to say, but I know that you're faithful. I know that you're a good God, and and I know that you're listening. That may be where some of you are today you kind of feel estranged from God. It's been a while since you've really connected with Him, and you wonder if He'll still receive you, if He'll still listen to you. It's part of what today is about. God is faithful. God wants you to come to Him. He's made a way for you to do it. We'll talk about it. Jacob also admits for the first time that it is God's grace and not his brilliant scheming that has kept him going all this time and given him so many of these blessings. This is very big for a guy like Jacob who is such a, a self-made man in some ways. What about you? When you come to God in prayer, is it with a recognition of what God has already done in your life, the blessings he's already brought into your life, the way his grace and mercy has already been there for you. And if not, then you'd be in a much worse place than you find yourself now. Do you come to God and say, okay, God, here's the problem. Here's where you failed me and you need to fix everything. Or do you come rehearsing God's blessings, thanking Him for them? That is a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do. Philippians, in one of the most famous verses about prayer in the Bible, tells us if we're anxious about stuff, we need to bring it to God. All of our petitions, all of our needs, whenever we get anxious, but then it says to do it. We often miss these two, verse, these two words with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Maybe most importantly, though, Jacob here shows God here that he has not forgotten what happened to him at Bethel 20 years ago. Not once, but twice, Jacob reminds God of promises that God has already made. Brothers and sisters, it it may seem counterintuitive to do this, but reminding God of promises that he has already made is a really good thing to do when you pray. And you say, well, why would I need to remind God of anything? Is it like God forgets stuff? No, God does not forget stuff. He's God. It's just that God loves it when people believe His promises. God loves it when people believe His promises enough to turn around and then bring them up to Him again. He loves that. And so you can go to Him when you're praying and you can say, God, you promised. 
you promised me that you will forgive my sins when I confess them to you. In 1 John, you said that if I confess, you'll be faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, so I'm coming to you. God, you've promised to never leave me or forsake me. God, you've promised that you will meet or actually have met all of my needs for life and, and godliness, and so show me how you've done that. God, you've promised me in 1 Corinthians that there is a way out of every temptation. God, you've promised to draw near to me when I draw near to you. God, you've promised me that I will never be put to shame for trusting in you and that if I humble myself that you will lift me up. God, you've promised me that you will fill me with your Holy Spirit if I make room for him and then ask him to come. Are there more promises? Can you think of some more that I just didn't mention? I I think so. One good question to ask yourself today is, the next time I pray, which of God's great and precious promises do I need to remind him of? And remind yourself of at the same time, of course. Great thing to do. Jacob says, Lord, my Lord, for the first time, my Lord, you once promised me that my descendants would be numerous and that if I came back to my country, you would do good things for me. So God, I'm reminding you of that. That's good. The problem with Jacob's prayer here is not what he says. What he says is awesome. The problem with Jacob's prayer is what he does when he's finished. Because the truth is, even though Jacob has some great words here, he has not really prayed this thing through yet, as we say. Not really. First of all, he hasn't heard anything back from God. And prayer is not a one-way communication. Second of all, Jacob has not reached a place of rest and confidence in God. Do Do you know that you can reach that? You know that when you, when you finish praying about something that matters greatly to you, even something you've been very fearful or anxious or, or upset about, it is possible at the end of your prayer to reach a point of rest and confidence and stability, even though the prayer has not yet been answered and the problem is still outstanding. It is possible to get to that place. Psalm 16. You can write that in the margin if you want. Psalm 16 is a really good example of this. Psalm 16 starts out like this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. That's the first line. It's David, and in fact, David is in the middle of some crisis, probably a life-threatening one. But then what David does in the next few verses is he starts rehearsing many of the good things God has already done for him, and he starts considering the character of God and the faithfulness of God, and what God has already done. And he ends up by saying this. After he considers God's character and faithfulness for a few verses, he says this, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also will dwell secure. David knows. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know how God's going to deliver him. He only knows that God is good, and that God loves him, and that God will never fail him, and that he can rest in who God is. Sometimes it takes a lot of effort to get to the place of rest in prayer. And you can tell that Jacob has not really reached this point of confident rest. You know why? Because as soon as he finishes praying, what does he do? He goes back to scheming immediately. You see, his prayer is real, but at this point, God is only part of the plan. Jacob is really covering all his bases. And yeah, it's a positive step now that God gets to be like one of the bases. But I want you to look at all the other ones he covers. In the verses after this prayer, first, he makes a pathetically extravagant attempt to buy off his brother. 
He sends Esau. He knows Esau's coming, so he sends out a bunch of animals in Esau's direction. He sends him five separate sets of gifts. He sends him goats, and then sheep, and then camels, and then cows, and then donkeys. And in between all of these herds, there's some space. So what's going to happen is as Esau starts to approach Jacob, and they're all from your servant Jacob. And so as Esau approaches Jacob, he's going to see the first set of animals. He's going to say, oh, that's interesting. Then he's going to get the second set of animals, then the third set. And so every time he thinks that the gift is over, there's more coming. It's like for Esau, it's like the 12 days of Christmas, only more animals, (laughs) really. Then having already, Jacob, before the prayer even started, Jacob had already split up his wife and his children, his wives, sorry, his wives and his children into two distinct camps. He figures if Esau attacks and destroys one camp, at least the other camp might get away. So he's already done that. Now he sends both sets of family members across the first of the two rivers, the Jabbok, to get more space between them and Esau. Now you might say, well, what's wrong with that? That's a pretty good move. In fact, what is wrong with doing things after we pray? Are we not supposed to work? Are we not supposed to do whatever we can even after we pray? Is it wrong to go to the doctor after I've prayed for my medical condition? Is it wrong to take, to take steps to deal with a problem even after I've prayed for God to help me with it? No, in most cases this is not wrong. I will tell you sometimes it is. There are times when God does want us to stop in our tracks and just be still and know that he is God. Sometimes that happens and we just have to watch him work. He did that with the Israelites at the Red Sea. He's like, what are you going to do? Often there's nothing we can do except pray. And God says, stop, rest, and see the salvation of your God. See my deliverance. There are other times, yes, that God calls us to pray and then informed by that prayer and infused with His energy and power and the Holy Spirit's leading, pray and then go to battle. In Jacob's case, here's the ironic thing. And we find this out at the end. I'm not going to read you these verses, but it happens in the verses after the ones we're going to read. The ironic thing in this whole story is that Esau was never a problem to begin with. He had no intention of killing Jacob or harming any of his family. In fact, God had changed Esau's heart a long, long time ago. And when Esau sees his younger brother, he actually runs up to him and he embraces him around the neck and he kisses him. He seems to have missed him. And then he even offers to escort Jacob's whole company part of the way home. So, Jacob is actually worried, see if this sounds familiar, Jacob is worried about something that God has already taken care of and that is never going to happen. What percentage of it, of of the things we worry about, don't happen? I've heard it's like 80 or 90. But let's look at the rest of Jacob's prayer. Because the rest of Jacob's prayer is going to show us even more about what it means to approach God. And you might say, what do you mean the rest of Jacob's prayer? Jacob's prayer is over, it ended at the end of verse 12. Yeah, that's what Jacob thought too. Jacob thought his prayer was over, but it was actually just beginning. You see, God hasn't spoken yet, but he's about to do so. Rather violently, it turns out. Verses 22 to 32, let's read them. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He, told them and he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. 
and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, or Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. There is a lot that happens in these verses. Let me just make a few comments. First of all, notice that Jacob comes out of this encounter with a new name, really a whole new identity. You know what? Prayer changes things. Prayer changes a lot of things. In fact, prayer, prayer often changes circumstances. It often changes the situation. But it always changes us. It often changes circumstances, but it always changes us. I mean real prayer. I don't mean just throwing a few words up and then forget. I mean if you've really prayed about something, if you've really fought through your pride and the distractions and you've met God in prayer, you will come out different. You will be changed. We will come out of prayer with a different outlook. We often emerge with more peace. We might have more direction. We might have a new set of priorities as God has shown us through our prayer that what we were asking for may have been good, but it wasn't the most important thing to ask for after all. You may have gone into your prayer asking God to bless your daughter with an A on that chemistry test or to help your son make the basketball team. But you may have ended up praying something very different. You may have ended up saying, God, that would be a good thing, but what I'm really praying for is for you to reveal yourself to my children through this process, no matter how it turns out, and draw them closer to you. Why? Because you spent some time around the conference table with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you found out what God's will really was and what you really needed to pray. You may have gone into that prayer asking God to change something about your spouse, but instead... After a little wrestling match with God, you ended up with a new realization and you ended up praying to be able to love her better. You know what? Prayer is dangerous. Don't do it for real unless you're ready for something to change. Jacob went into this encounter as Jacob, the heel grabber, the supplanter, the cheat, the grasper. He emerged as Israel the one who strives with God and prevails, the man who has finally figured out that his plan might not always be the best one, that God is to be worshipped and obeyed, not just manipulated, and that unless you receive God's blessing, it doesn't matter how much you plan and scheme. You'll eventually scheme yourself into destruction and failure. It's funny when Jacob meets Esau later on. He can't stop talking about God's grace what God did for me, what God has blessed me with, what God has done for me. He didn't used to talk like that. But you know what? In the process of this wrestling match, Jacob actually gets injured pretty badly. I can imagine that a dislocated hip would be quite painful to wrestle with. 
right? I would probably let go of my opponent right away if he dislocated my hip, but not Jacob. Jacob hangs on. But you know what? Because of his injury, that's all he can do. Did you know? I mean, he's got a dislocated hip. He can't do much. He's lost all leverage, interestingly enough. He, all, he has to, all he can do is hang on. At the end of this fight, Jacob is no longer trying to beat things out of God. He's merely hanging on for dear life. Jacob started the night as a grasper. He ended up as a clinger. Instead of grasping at things he wants to take from God or from others, he is now clinging to God himself, begging for whatever blessing God is willing to give him. And in fact, although God does bless him, did you notice we don't even find out what the blessing really was? It's not, it's not detailed there. The real struggle for Jacob and the real struggle for us in the Christian life and in prayer is not just to obtain things from God. It is a struggle to keep clinging to God himself and seeking his blessing, which is always better than our plans and schemes. So in some ways, this is weird, but the struggle to win, the struggle to prevail with God is most often a struggle to surrender. Or as I've heard it put by others, the ultimate goal of prayer is not transactional but relational. It is not merely to receive something from God's hand, but it's to see God's face. Amen. This happens to Jacob, and he can't stop talking about it. He, he immediately talks about it when he, when he gets up from his, his restless night. And he talks about it really with Esau the next day too. He's seen the face of God and lived. Did you ever wonder what face Jacob saw? I mean, we find out from Moses later on that no one can see the face of God and live. So is, is Jacob just using a figure of speech? Is he saying, I got so close to God that it was kind of like I almost saw his face? Is that what he's saying? Probably not. He doesn't seem to be making a figure of speech because it, it makes a huge impression. In fact, he names the place where this happens, Peniel, the face of God. So did, did Jacob, maybe Jacob just saw some kind of a dim, suggestive glow of God's face without really any features. Maybe that was it. Maybe. Or is it possible? Is it possible that Jacob was actually wrestling with the pre-incarnate Christ? It doesn't say that. But is it possible that the face that Jacob saw was actually the face of God the Son? I think there's a good chance of that. Speaking of God the Son, after all this talk about Jacob grasping for all he can get and scheming to come out on top of his opponents and to win every time, it's almost impossible not to notice the stark contrast between Jacob and his descendant Jesus. Philippians tells us this, and some of you know the verses, that Jesus was in his very nature God. Jesus had it all. But despite his divine identity, it says there that Jesus did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, just as he did in this wrestling match with Jacob, at the cross, Jesus chose to lose when he could have won. And he did that so we could receive a blessing. Right. What blessing? The blessing of a whole new identity, a new life, forgiven by God, led by God, even adopted by God. 
And it's because of that sacrifice that Jesus made when he died for our sins that we have the incredible privilege of walking into the throne room of heaven and spending time with the Lord of the entire universe who is now our Father. And when we meet God, when we meet God in prayer, or for that matter, when we meet God in worship on a Sunday morning or any time you meet God in worship, when you meet the Lord God, you should come out changed. You should, when you collide with God, guess who changes? Not him, right? And when we see, as, as Paul calls it in Corinthians, the glory of God in the face of Christ, we will never come away unchanged. Jacob came away limping but blessed. I think sometimes that describes us when we really spend time with God. We come away limping because there were some things that we didn't expect. So we're a little bit stunned, but we're blessed because of God's goodness. Are you really, I want you to pray, I want you to worship, I want you to meet with God, I want us all to do that, it's important, but are you really willing to risk it? When you meet with God, are you willing to be changed? Are you willing to be changed? Maybe even in a way that you didn't anticipate. Let's pray, and then we're just going to kind of meditate our way through a song.